Okay, so I guess probably not many of us got up this morning and did our quiet time in Zephaniah. So as we look at this text, I want us to do a little bit of background because if you're like me, when I started preparing for this, I didn't know a whole lot about what was going on in the story of Zephaniah. Um, but we know that Zephaniah was written during the reign of Josiah. If you remember, Josiah was the, the boy king who, who uh, began ruling when he was a little kid. And then later in his rule, in his 20s, he, there were reforms where he went in and he tore down the high places and he, he restored things. So this was at the beginning. We know that because in Zephaniah 1 it says, And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. And so we know it was written during the reign of, Zeph- of Josiah, and so we know it was early because here Zephaniah is condemning practices that Josiah later took care of. So we can place this, this little book in a very specific point in the history of God's children. It's a warning about the day of the Lord. Over and over and over in Zephaniah, he talks about the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Now, let me just pause for a minute and say in prophecy, there's oftentimes what we call a near fulfillment of prophecy, something that happened when the prophet talked, and then a far fulfillment of prophecy. Let me give you an example. So Isaiah talks about there is a virgin who will conceive and bring forth a son. Now specifically, Isaiah is talking about the fact, it would be like if I were to walk into Kid City and say, this little girl is going to grow up and get married, and when that happens, after she has a kid, this thing will happen. And so the near prophecy was is that that girl that he, that he was talking about grew up and had a baby. In fact, we know what the girl's name is. We know what the baby's name is. It's listed there in the Bible. It had a far implication in that when the angel came to Mary, he said, as the prophet said, a virgin will conceive and bring forth a son, which we know is Jesus, right? And so there was a near fulfillment right there in that time as it was spoken, and then there was a far fulfillment. And this idea of the day of the Lord is a day of reckoning, when God's going to make everything balanced out. There was a near fulfillment of that, if you remember, when Abraham stood, I'm sorry, when Moses stood before the children of Israel, he said, I set before you a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey me, And a curse, if you don't obey me, they had ran after foreign gods. They had done this thing. They had done that thing. They had disobeyed God and done whatever they wanted to do. And so the day of the Lord was coming. And in the near fulfillment of that prophecy, it happened. Babylon came crashing into Jerusalem, tore it down to the ground, took off the children of Israel into a foreign land. And in the far fulfillment of that will be the day of the Lord when God will write all the scales. God is going to bring justice. You know, you read the first chapter of Revelation and it says, happy is everyone who reads this book. Now I will tell you, Probably, unless an angel comes to the foot of my bed, you're never going to hear me preach through the book of the Revelation. Because there's some confusing stuff there. I mean, you've got locusts flying around, and you've got people getting killed over here, and you've got a third of the earth dying over here, and then seals are getting open. 
It's not something that I read and go, whoa, this is good stuff, right? Because you're normally I'm reading it going, what is it, what? If you were living in first century Rome and everything that you owned had been taken away from you because you were a Christian, your family had been taken off and sold into slavery because you claimed the name of Christ, to read how at the end of the story, God's going to make everything right would have been the only thing that would have kept you going. That God, it will bring justice. And so for those first century readers, they would have read that the end of the story means that God knows what he's doing. That would have meant everything in those moments. And so the day of the Lord is when the scales are balanced. When justice will be served. The book of the Revelation talks about the day of the Lord using terms like the wine press of God's wrath is poured out on the earth. That is just a terribly, unbelievably graphic image of destruction coming onto the earth. The day of the Lord, it will be reckoned. Now, the near fulfillment is what we want to talk about at first. And there in Zephaniah's day, he's telling them, repent. You guys have ran after foreign gods. You guys are running around wearing foreign clothes. You're wanting to look like everybody else in the world and not be God's people. If you don't repent, God will bring destruction upon your head. There is still time to repent. In Zephaniah 2.3, he writes, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Now, what Zephaniah is saying is for the nation of Israel, it's too late. God's wrath is going to come. But for you, individuals, if you turn, if you repent, perhaps God will protect you when that day comes, is what Zephaniah is saying. So there was still time to repent. Now, what we tried to, have tried to do as we looked at each one of these references is try to put ourselves in a 4th century B.C. mindset. In the time of Josiah... A foreign king had already come down and taken the nation of Israel off. They were gone. There had been destruction. They could see that they were caught between two great empires at war. You had the Babylonian empire over here that was growing, expanding, taking things over. And then over here, you had the Egyptian empire. That though it was wavering, though it was in its twilight, was still extremely powerful. And they were stuck in the middle. Everybody wanted to cross their land to fight each other. They felt hopeless. And legitimately so. Everything around them seemed to be falling apart. Everything that was happening, it seemed like there was nothing they can do. They were this little bitty remnant of two tribes that were left. The other ten had already been taken off by a different authority. And so there was a problem, and the perceived problem was, was all the geopolitical circumstances that were around them. Now, Zephaniah and Josiah, the king at the time, would have known the story of Josiah's grandfather. 
Josiah's grandfather was in a similar situation. You see, the Assyrian Empire had moved into to the situation, had taken those ten tribes off, and they were camped all around Jerusalem. We see that the king had sent a man named Rabshakeh, and then this is what we read. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver you, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey that you may live and not die. Do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sephravim, Hena, and Ivah? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the land have delivered out their lands to my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Now picture this. Here is a, a spokesman for the king of the largest nation in the world who has the unmitigated gall to stand in the gates of Jerusalem and say, don't listen to your king. He's going to run his mouth and say that God will deliver them. Where are the gods that delivered all these other lands that I've conquered? Their gods didn't show up and neither will yours. There was a very real legitimate issue of hundreds of thousands of troops that they could look over the gates and see. And so here this warrior walks up to the gates, walks through the city with impunity, and it makes these kind of statements in Jerusalem. Do whatever you want to do, big boy. But you better surrender because if you don't, you're all going to die. If you surrender, we'll take you to another land. It'll all be good. But your God is weak. There is no way that he can defeat that army. The text tells us that the people were silent. They didn't say a word. Can you imagine their fear? Here is little Jerusalem up on a hillside. And all up and down the Mount of Olives, all the way around into Gehenna, their troops are just as far as the eye can see. God couldn't possibly be able to handle that. They had a legitimate, real, physical issue of hundreds of thousands of men with very real, not spiritual, not, you know, ethereal, very real swords, very real horses, very real pikes. Hey, we're not talking about a Bible study here, guys. I can see them. They can come through these gates. Hezekiah sent for Isaiah. Isaiah comes, and Isaiah says, don't worry about it. God's got this under control. So, Hezekiah doesn't do anything. 
And so the king of Assyria sends a note because he's in third grade. And this is what the note says. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezaf, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar. Where's the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Telassar, the king of Hena, or the king of Ivah? What he's saying here is, here, here you got this letter coming and saying, don't trust in God, you need to make a deal. So Hezekiah takes the letter, literally takes it to the altar of God, lays it out on the altar, and in 2 Kings 19.35 we read, And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. So all the thing that they feared to God was just a little thing. I think it's hilarious that in this particular story, God doesn't choose to use a battle. He doesn't choose to use some kind of thing. It's almost like he sends this bored angel out to go, all right, okay, all y'all dead. And then, boom, they all fall dead. So that when Israel wakes up in the next morning, they're looking out over the big, huge crowd because they're scared to death. And they're like, hey, hey, everybody's dead out there. To the children of Israel, they saw it as a physical issue. There were legit, for real soldiers out there. And what God was trying to show them was it was a spiritual issue that Hezekiah needed to go humble himself before the Lord, grab the horns of the altar, and just lay that letter out. So we have our physical issue, and then we have the spiritual issue. Zephaniah would have known that story. That happened again to Josiah's granddad. We've moved further down in the story now. The children of Israel have gone back to their wicked ways. Now a different empire that had taken over the Assyrians, which was just as mighty, just as strong, is on the doorstep. We read through all the minor prophets how there's debate about should we align with Egypt? Should we align with Babylon? What are we going to do? They still are looking at everything that's happening around them. Now, you may have seen a post today or noticed in, in when the Huffs lit the candle that today uh, in, in our, our time is the day of joy. Today's supposed to be joy. And you may be thinking at this point, why, how, what has this got to do with joy? The book, Solomon says, it rains on the just and the unjust. The Bible tells us, and you know what? Your own life has shown you that there are going to be really hard times that come into your life. Some of you right now have a relationship that's fallen apart. 
You have some bills. You don't have a clue how you're going to pay. There are the list of people in this church who are sick, some unto death, is the longest it's been since I've been here. It just seems like there's so much sickness around. And if we look at this world as all we've got, you're never going to experience joy. You're never going to understand even what joy is. We as believers have to remember that this world is not our home. If we're dependent on everything working out for us, you're never going to be happy. Because it's never going to always work out. And even when it works out in a way that you think If you thought, think in your mind right now, if I just had $100,000 in the bank so that I could pay all these bills, I would be happy. It's not, well, it's not going to happen because I don't have $100,000 to give you. But that's not the point I was trying to make. That would not make you happy. If anything in this world is where you think you're going to find your happiness, I'm here to tell you it is hollow. The suicide rate among people who win the lottery is astronomical. Because they find out that all of a sudden they got lots of friends that have great investment advice for them. Money is not going to make you happy. You're not going to find your joy in health. You're not going to find your joy in family. You're not going to find your joy in church. Can I, can I say that in church? What Zephaniah is talking about in this text, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. He has just spent three chapters telling them, you are about to be destroyed. How can he say that? How can he say the Lord has taken away the judgments against you? He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. How can he say that? So, the people in this day were living under the law. They all knew what the law was. So the law prescribes a moral code. The law is good in that it shows us the reflection of how God wants us to live. The law says, don't kill. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. Remember your father and mother. That your days may be long on the earth. The law is written so that externally we can see what we're supposed to do. The problem with the law is we can't do it. Even the ones that are big ones, you know, that we think, okay, I got that one. Like the don't murder. Like I'm pretty sure I cannot murder anybody today. So long as I don't have to drive on Megan, I'm pretty sure I got that. But Jesus even raised the bar on those and said, if you have anger in your hatred in your heart toward your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. You may say, I got adultery. I got that one down. Jesus raised the bar and said, if you look at a woman to lust after, you've committed adultery in your heart. Jesus is pointing out that even if we can externally act like we've got the law together, internally, we're still full of dead men's bones. And so... What the new covenant says 
is, I will recreate you from the inside out. You know, we were talking about that day of reckoning that's coming. There will be justice. God will make things right. Do you look at the world sometimes and say, is there no justice in this world? You see in countries around the world, when in our own country, when it seems like justice has run amok, and you look and you go, ah, who's going to fix this? Well, one day God's going to fix it. The problem that we should have with the fact that justice will be served is that I don't want justice to be realized in my life. See, as we've just pointed out, I can't fulfill the law. I've had people say, it's not fair that God would send someone to hell for 70 years of a lifetime of sin. That's not fair that they would go to hell for eternity. That can't be a loving God. Well, that's, that's not how in this culture, in any culture, we, we formulate punishment for crime, right? The way crime is punished is the value of the thing offended. Let me make that clear. So if a mosquito were to bite me and I were to kill it, I, I probably wouldn't go to jail, right? Because we don't ascribe any value to that mosquito. If I were to go kill a bunch of puppies, I'm not trying to make anybody sad. I'm not trying to upset anybody. I would go to jail. for for If I were to go kill a bunch of puppies, I would go to jail because I, I, I have harmed an animal and we ascribe more value clearly in our society to puppies than we do to cows. Because for lunch, I hope to call, be the cause for some cows to die. Now, some of you are having to think about that a minute. Wait, what is he doing? <laughs> so we ascribe more value to puppies than we do to cows, which is more than we do to mosquitoes. If I killed my wife, I would go to jail for a really long time, much longer unless I lived in California than if I killed some puppies. <laughs> because we ascribe most value to a human, right? It doesn't matter how long it took me to kill her. I'm not going to keep using you as an example of killing you. Because um, <laughs> she's looking at me like, what are you doing? Um, it, but it doesn't matter how long it took. It, I can't say to the judge, well, look, it, I, I only spent five minutes murdering. Why are you going to send me to prison for my whole life? The Bible says that when we break the law, because we're a created being, and that God has written the law in our heart, we know better that what we're doing is we are offending a holy God who has infinite value. And so our lives as we live in rebellion to God means that we are in open enmity with God. What we deserve is hell. What we rate is punishment. Because a holy God who has created everything has been offended because of our life. So we don't want justice. And so the Bible talks about mercy, but how is mercy tied to justice? To the writers and the, the hearers of, of this prophecy, it wouldn't have made a lot of sense because the Bible says that God is a just God. What we deserve is punishment. In Romans 3 it says... For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and that the wages, the payment for sin, is death. That's what we deserve. 
there was, we had no hope to have a relationship with God. One of the things that has amazed me as I've had the opportunity to travel around the world is everywhere you go, there are temples. People know that there's a God and they want to have some sort of relationship with Him. Now, if we can't possibly have a relationship with Him on our own merit, God had to make a way. And the way that God made a way was He sent Himself. And then Jesus lived a life without sin that could be attributed to us, that his righteousness could be in our place, and then the sin, the shame, the punishment that we deserve could be poured out on him. And so rejoice, O gates of Jerusalem. God is going to make a way so that your sins are covered, so that all of this stuff that you've done could be forgiven. And God made a way in himself. He took on the punishment. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So that's the one place. We can rejoice and be filled with joy because we know at the end of the story, we know where where we'll be. If we have to spend this entire life with a towel wrapped around us because that's all we can afford, we know in the next life that God has given us streets of gold and the fact that we stand around the throne of the Lamb and say, worthy is the Lamb that was slain from the foundations of the world to receive honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. But as we've talked about before, it still reigns in Christians' lives, right? I mean, when I hear the hymn that says, and now I'm happy all the day, I go, what am I missing? Right? So as I was preparing this, I realized I had to put an addendum. Now, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians And at the end of 2 Corinthians, he kind of described his life. He said, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. Paul is on purpose bragging to put the people who were telling that he didn't know what he was doing to shame. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. You don't think that hurt? Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, dangers at sea. Dangers from false brothers and toils and hardships through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from the other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the church. Who is weak? Am I not weak? Who is made to fall? And so Paul, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, talks about all the things that he went through. And this isn't some kind of little petty thing that he's talking about. He's talking about how 
clearly, daily, life, day after day after day, he was literally for fear of his own life. He says in Philippians, I learned how to starve. This is not a man who's writing most of the New Testament from some ivory tower. This is a man who has given it all away to serve his king, and God seemed to thank him for that by making sure that just about every day he thought he was going to die. Do you hear the pain as he talks about my own countrymen? The people who should love me were ready to kill me. Nobody cared about me in my life. This same Paul, the same guy who who described all that, a few chapters before that said this. We have this ministry by the mercies of God. And he says, but we have the treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us. We do not lose heart, verse 16. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And then of all that stuff that we read, all that stuff that seems so unbelievably difficult, he says, for this light momentary Affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Every pain you will experience, God is going to use in your life. Now, I want to park on the first part. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that their surpassing power belongs to God and not us. Now, we talked about the first one we were talking about, anticipation, about the question, why does God allow bad things to happen to people, and so now really the question is why do God, does God allow bad things to happen to his people? Because there's a difference. He said, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that their surpassing power belongs to God and not us. Now that word jars of clay, we don't, that's not something we use every day, but what in Paul's day that would have been was, okay, remember your mama had these red or orange pots? That were made out of mud, terracotta, right? You know what I'm talking about? The, the, little, the little pot. That's the clay that he's talking about, terracotta pots. We have found them all over the Roman world, and they were shaped funny because they were made to sit in the bottom of a boat so that as the sides of the boat they would fit all together, and wine, olive oil, all the stuff that would be shipped would be shipped in these jars of clay. And then the top of the jar would, be, would have something put around, and it would be sealed. So... When you got the jar, it would have been for olive oil, right? You don't go to Walmart and look at the, the peanut butters and pick the best peanut butter because the best looking jar, do you? I mean, I don't go and go, well, I normally buy Jeff, but man, that Skippy jar is looking fine. I'm going to get that. No, I buy something because of what's in it, right? And Paul is saying, this treasure of the surpassing power of God as seen in the face of Jesus It's the treasure that he's talking about. We have it in jars of clay. 
Because the only way that you can get the good stuff out of those jars is to break them. They were sealed. And so when you got the jar, you broke the neck off the top of the jar so that whatever the good stuff inside, you could get out. And Paul is saying that the things that happen in our life are happen to us to show that the power belongs to God and not us. To show you and to show your children and to show the people around you that God is real. When somebody cusses at you and you look at them and say, God bless you, that ain't normal. When your kid gets sick and you cry out to God for help. When something comes into your life that shows you ain't got it all together. Because I'm going to let you in a little secret. None of us have it all together. We're all falling apart. We're all people who are broken. And so when we, bad things come into our life and we respond in grace, then the world can say, what is that? And they can see that the power is God's and not us. Paul goes on to say in in chapter 11, he says, So I will glory in my weaknesses, because in my weaknesses I am strong. I want to close with this, because this is really cool, and I really wanted to park here for the whole sermon, and I've lost my Bible. Oh, there it is. If a preacher can preach without a Bible, then you need to find a new preacher. Um, That's just for free. You don't even have to pay for it. There's lots of singing in this prophecy. That last time is coming. Those days when destruction is going to occur. He has spent three chapters talking about the day of the Lord coming. And yet, when he talks about God's forgiveness, he talks about singing. First of all, the the people of Israel sing. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. They are commanded to rejoice. And that's good stuff. That when the bad things come into your life, I think I've shared with you guys before that that the the IMB looked at churches that have persecution. And the churches that collapse are churches, well, when persecution comes to a church, either one or two things can happen, right? They either grow, as we've seen a lot of churches do, that when there's martyrs and the the government, like right now in China, they're, they're cracking down on Christians. I, I read two prominent pastors were arrested this week. Hundreds of church members have been arrested. When that persecution comes, that's usually when the church grows. But there have been times when persecution came and it destroyed the church, like in Somalia. The church in Somalia was completely eliminated in one night. And so the IMB wanted to say, why in one case did it seem that the church grows, and in the other case it seems like the church just shrivels and dies? And they found without exception the churches that expand in persecution is churches that had a mature hymnology. Churches that had a song to sing. When Peter and Paul are in prison, what do we find them doing? Throughout the New Testament, every time these Christians are getting together, they had the Lord's Supper and then they sang we as christians are a people that sing and god is literally commanding them to sing have a song in your heart but that's not the best part (laughs) just hold on this is going to get really good 
The best part is the other person who's singing. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I don't know that ever in my Christian walk I've ever thought about the Father singing. And here he's singing over us. Wow! The God that created the universe is looking over his children and singing. And he's not singing a hushed little baby lullaby. He's not singing a there, there. No, he's singing loudly. He's singing with abandon. He's singing over the children that he loves. He's being silly. Wow. Father God, I pray that this week as we talk of joy, let us rest in the fact that the Father sings over us. Oh God, thank you for showing us this this week. Lord, I pray. Lord, I long for the day in heaven when you will sing over us. And so Lord, I pray. I know that into probably every life here there are storms. Lord, that we would not focus on the storm around us but we would focus on the God who can quiet the storms. We would focus on the God who sings over us with abandon. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.